Uh, So we're in Matthew chapter 22, verse 23 to the end of the chapter. Uh, Let's pray and we'll look at our text. Uh, Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. We thank you for your word. Lord, I ask that as we uh, study this passage, as we look um, at this scene in the temple, Father, we ask that you would help us to understand uh, the situation, what was uh, being thrown at Jesus, how was he being attacked. Lord, help us to see how he responded. Um, Lord, uh, may your spirit guide us and direct us through this passage. Uh, We ask not only would we understand what happened back then, but, Lord, that your spirit would help us to see principles that transcend time and culture um, so that we today could see what it is that you desire to convey to us. Lord, we all are in different places and different ups and downs of our life right now. And we thank you that your word is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. Uh, we, we present ourselves to you and we ask that you would speak to us through your word. May we ultimately grow closer to you. And Lord, may we uh, live our lives in a way that is pleasing to you. Uh, we love you, Lord. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. Matthew 22, verse 23. On that day, some Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus and questioned him, asking, Teacher, Moses said, if a man dies, having no children, his brother, as next of kin, shall marry his wife and raise up children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers with us, and the first married and died. And having no children, left his wife to his brother. So also the second and the third down to the seventh. Last of all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they all had married her. But Jesus answered and said to them, you are mistaken, not understanding the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. But regarding the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. When the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. But when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered themselves together. One of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to them, you shall love the Lord God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, then how does David in the spirit call him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. If David calls him Lord, how is he his son? No one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare from that day on to ask him another question. Father, we do thank you for your word. 
Uh, We ask that you would help us now as we navigate this passage. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. So the very first phrase here, we read on verse 23, it says, on that day, which is the perfect segue to sort of review, like on that day, what day are we on? What's happening here? Um, We now are um, Tuesday, Wednesday, we believe. We know by the end of chapter uh, 23, we're we're sort of at Wednesday. Uh, It's believed that Thursday picks up, or I mean Thursday, 24 picks up on Thursday um, of, of the Passion Week. So Jesus is going to be crucified this week. Uh, Jesus has made his entry into the Temple Mound. Matthew is, is recording it from a very uh, Jewish perspective. Um, they, they had made their way to the temple. There was that fig tree that showed all sorts of life and fruit and promise that it should be producing something that, that, they, could, that they could eat. Um, but when Jesus went to look for food, there was actually no food. So he curses the tree, and the tree withers up and dies really over the course of the next 24 hours, according to Mark. Um, but, but this was an image to show where Israel ha- had gone. The, the temple was so huge. It was, it was the greatest building in human history during that time. Uh, great sacrifices were going on there. Uh, people had descended and were, were, were there for Passover. Um, it, was, it was a great time of, of, of worship and celebration. Uh, but Jesus is, is confronting them, showing that, that the priest and the leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, all of Israel, they were putting on this big display of religion, but underneath the green leaves, there was no fruit. And so Jesus is in the Temple Mount. He's teaching. He's, he's leading the crowd. This, this, this area of the Temple Mount was something like 25 acres, um, a huge piece of property, and while he's teaching, he's confronted by the leaders. And they say, whose authority are you teaching by? Nobody denied his authority. They said, whose credentials? Where, were you, where did you get your rabbinic certification? Where did you go to seminary? What did, where did you do all of your, your teaching? And Jesus, remember, he says, well, I'll answer your question if you answer my question. And he asked them about John the Baptist. And I won't review the whole story. But they question his authority And by the end of today, Jesus is going to answer their question about his authority. Uh, By the end of today, they're done talking to Jesus. Nobody will ask him questions. Um, His fate is sealed by their hands, essentially, that that the, the crucifixion is coming. Chapter 23 is going to be one sermon following this response. He's going to respond to the crowds of people. And then as we start chapter 24, it's going to be another scene a couple days later, or a, a, you know, a day later, which is known as the Olivet Discourse. So there's two sermons, and then we're not going to get to the Olivet Discourse until January. We're going to link it up with, with Easter and, and Good Friday, because after the Olivet Discourse, it goes into his crucifixion and resurrection. And so here we are today. We're, we're mid-span. Jesus has already told three parables, sort of condemning the Israelites, uh, specifically the re- religious leaders, about how they had rejected God's offer of salvation, his plan, his way. Um, so then they come with three attacks. Last week, we looked at the attack about the poll tax. The, the, is it lawful to pay this poll tax with this, with this idolatry coin that has Caesar's face on it? And in giving the coin, you're, you're, you're basically paying homage and worshiping Caesar. And so Jesus basically navigates that masterfully. Uh, in a way that they, they couldn't anticipate seeing, 
basically says, whose image is that? We'll give to Caesar what's Caesar and give to God what's God's. And basically alluding to the fact that God's seal, his imprint, his fingerprints, his image have been placed in our lives. So give the coin to Caesar, but give your life to God. And they were sort of irate by the end of that. Now we see a couple of attacks. We're going to meet the Sadducees. Then the Pharisees are going to come in uh, sort of upset. And by the end of today, Jesus is going to come to them with a question that's going to silence them. It's, 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 it's beautiful, uh, if you like a good argument. Um, so on that day, this is the day, some Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to Jesus and questioned him. So we're introduced to the Sadducees. I've introduced the Pharisees to you. The Pharisees really were, um, they were sort of the blue-collar leaders. They, they were, the, they were the, the people or the, the leaders, the religious leaders, who the, the average working family identified with. Um, they were sort of the conservatives of their day. They believed in the whole of the Old Testament. They believed in the miracles that were spoken um, they, they believed in it, it, that, that when miracles happened, they believed in a resurrection. They just believed it. And the Bible said it. They believed it. Um, they might not have applied it correctly, but, but in large part, they're the conservative ones. Now, the Sadducees, you know, of course, it's the oldest joke uh, from the pulpit. Uh, they were Sadducee because they didn't believe in the resurrection. I feel I think there's uh, something in our, the, the pastor's union that you have to tell that joke every time it like, comes through. Um, but these, these guys were smaller in number. They were the aristocrats. They, they were very, very wealthy. Um, they only believed in the first five books of the Bible, the, the Torah or the, the Pentateuch. Um, they, they did not believe in the resurrection. They did not believe in the miracles. They, did, they, they were the liberals of the day, uh, liberals from a, from a religious perspective. From a, I'm not talking like Democrat, Republican. I'm, I'm talking uh, they were the religious ones that essentially barely believed in God. But they were the controlling party. They controlled the temple. They controlled the Sanhedrin, which was sort of their, their, their Congress or their Senate for, for Israel. They, they were the ruling party. They had all of the power. The Pharisees had tried to come in and confront Jesus. But when Jesus is confronted by them, uh, they were sort of behind the scenes. Remember, they sent their disciples, and then they sent the, the Herodians to confront Jesus. So now the Sadducees, they come. Matthew tells us he doesn't want history uh, to, to forget what they didn't believe. They did not believe in the resurrection. Which when you read that statement in, in the parentheses, Matthew wants us to keep this in our minds um, because their whole question, it just shows you where they're coming from. So they came to Jesus, and, and I think what they're thinking, they have a question that the Pharisees can't answer, and it's like their trump card. It's like they pull it out in the religious argument. Nobody can come back. Nobody has an answer. There's no way Jesus has an answer for this, and we're going to get him. This is our silver bullet. There's no way he's going to get through this little riddle we've put together. So they come to him, and they ask, they ask him, uh, Teacher, Moses said, If a man dies having no children, his brother as next of kin shall marry his wife and raise up children for his brother. So they quote a passage from the part of the Bible that they believe is the Bible. It's Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 5. This law will seem crazy to us. Uh, this law is referred to as a lever, leveret law. 
It's spelled, just so you know, L-E-V-I-R-A-T-E. This is not dealing with the Levites. This is a law sort of keeping it simple. The, The main purpose of the law, the heart behind this law, is as Israel as a nation went into the land, they were divided into 12 tribes. Um, then you have one tribe that's split into two, and then the Levites weren't allowed to have any land. And so this law was, was designed so that if a man died with no children, but he had brothers, the heart of it was to keep his life uh, alive, his family lineage alive, to keep his portion of the land uh, intact. Um, it, it was for preserving his lineage. Um, it, it's, it's hard for us to sort of understand because of the culture we live in. We don't, we don't have land. We, we don't operate in this. You will be familiar with the story where this law was applied, and that was in the book of Ruth. Remember what happened. They go to the edge of town. Boaz said, there's a kinsman redeemer that's closer to you than I am. And... And so I need to go there. They go there. The guy takes off his sandal. He's like, I'm, I don't want, I got, I'm, mar- like, I'm married. There's no way this is, like, I don't, there's no way another wife is coming to the family. This won't work. I have kids. Like, I need to get out of, like, this got to get out of this. Well, this is like, yeah, I'd be happy to take that. So throw your sandal at me or whatever he did. It's been a while since I read the story. But, you know, there's a sandal and, and, and Ruth is taken as a husband by Boaz. And this is the whole law so that her deceased husband, he has sort of a claim to the land. And so they, they're bringing up this sort of this obscure law. Um, but it's from the portion of the Bible that they adhere to, that they believe in. They would have all known what he's talking about. And so now that they've quoted the passage, Deuteronomy 25, 25, they've created this story. So now they're going to present this story to Jesus And then they're going to ask Jesus a question after they tell the story. So the story goes, uh, uh, verse 25, now there were seven brothers. There were seven brothers with us, and the first married and died, and having no children, left his wife to his brother. So also the second and the third, down to the seventh, last of all, the woman dies. This is a really beautiful love story. So the woman marries, husband number one dies, marries brother number two, brother dies, brother three, four, five, six, seven, and then kaput. They all die. So they've all been married. They've all died. There's no children. This didn't actually happen. This is their story. This is, this is their story. So now they come with their super spiritual question to Jesus. They're coming to him. Well, we're really struggling over this theological point. We love the Lord. We're Sadducees. We control the temple. We've been wrestling with this point for a long time. We really want to know. See, that parenthetical statement when the Sadducees roll up, it wasn't... Um, it wasn't like the, hey, we don't believe in the resurrection. This is what everybody knows about them. And so they're pitching this case, not really necessarily playing their cards that they don't believe in the resurrection, but they're sort of acting like they really, at this point, they super-duper care about the resurrection. But their heart is, this is the trump card. The Pharisees could never answer this question. And so they ask the question in verse 28. In the resurrection, therefore, now do they care about the resurrection? Do they believe in the resurrection? Absolutely not. Therefore... Whose wife of the seven will she be? For they all married her. I I, I, I love this. I mean, I, I love it in a funny sort of way. So they bring up the resurrection. We know that they could, they could, they don't, I wouldn't say that they don't care about the resurrection. They care about the resurrection very much. Namely, that they think it's foolish that dead people don't rise from the grave. 
Um, you know, we, we sing about it. We sing that last song, I believe in the resurrection. You know, and we'll carry on. I'll let leave Don and the worship team to sing the rest. Um, but, but we believe in a literal resurrection. We believe in a, a resurrection of the living and the dead, the, the, those who have been born again and those who have not, that all people will rise from the grave eventually. And so they ask this question. They say, well, we, oh, sure, we believe in the resurrection. So, so now there's eight people who've died. There's one woman and seven guys. They've all married her. Now the resurrection happens. Who's married to her? Is it the first one? And so Grace and I were talking earlier this week, kind of like, Grace, like, this is just a weird story. I'm like, it is. It's a weird story. And she's like, well, it's got to be the first one because that was his wife. And all the other ones, they just sort of, you know, she's like, ah, well, I don't even, you know. They're, she's having to marry these brothers, not because she loves them. So it's got to be the first one. I'm like, ah, this is just, this is the kind of like thing that they're trying to get Jesus distracted in. Um, they, they, don't, they don't care about the resurrection. This isn't a legitimate question. And as I look at their question, one of the, one of the things that struck me about the, the Sadducees is I'm a guy who loves getting questions. I love it when people come to me through you know, email, texting, or sitting me down and saying, hey, I have a question about the word of God. I have a, I have a question about this or this. Like whether they're just like super young in the faith and they, they, they don't, they just have a whole lot of questions. Um, and, and sometimes there are sincere questions that there's just not an answer. And that, that's like the, um, this morning I had to look up, we're talking and it's like, oh, Deuteronomy 29. It's like the secret things belong to the Lord and the, the things revealed to us belong to us. The things that don't belong to us haven't been revealed. And so there's some questions that we just can't answer. God hasn't revealed them, so, so we just don't know. And I have no problem working with people, even if it's like a question that's just like, I don't see the point. It's like, well, let's take this out. If your heart's right and you're sincere, let's, like, I'm fine. Proverbs talks about iron sharpening iron. Let's dig through the question. Let's see if we can find something. But now then there are other questions. And, and the people asking the question, they have absolutely no desire to seek their purpose isn't to answer like they're not truly seeking an answer they're just trying to be difficult they're trying to disprove your faith they have no intention in seeking after god and there 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 are there are some questions that are just better sort of ignoring like there's like i'm sorry like people come to me and they uh you know i don't think that this is a like i'm not going to answer that question like, I, I, like, we can't answer the question. You're, you're, not sincere, you're not sincere about it. And this is sort of, you know, where spiritual wisdom, like, you kind of have to have discernment because it's hard to tell if a person's being serious or not. I love that Jesus, I don't know what I would have done, but I love that Jesus continues to engage these guys, even though he knows that they're just trying to condemn him. They're just trying to get him into a pickle. They're trying to trap him. Jesus continues to work with them. And so from this, he responds in verse 29. So Jesus answered and said to them, first off, you're mistaken. Um, you're just wrong. Like bold, Jesus. Like these are like the leaders. These are the guys in authority. These are the guys that control all of the power of the temple. And he says, you're just mistaken. Uh, point number one, you don't understand the scriptures. Like, you're here all religious, but you have no idea what the scripture says. And I love Valley Center on, on barbecue days because that means we have flies in here. So I'm not, you know, if you, I don't know if you guys can see the fly, but that's what's happening up here. Um, <clears throat> he says, you're mistaken. First, you don't understand the scriptures. And as Jesus sort of unpacks this, Jesus is going to stay within their 
the scope of what they believe. They hold to the first five books of the Bible. So Jesus is going to, he's going to limit his conversation to, to that of the Old Testament, which is a, which is a beautiful thing. Like this is a beautiful thing. So maybe if you're, you know, like I remember I had a seminary professor that we walked into class and they wanted to challenge us. Hey, you have a Jewish friend. They don't believe in the New Testament. You need to witness to them about Christ from the Old Testament. It's like, oh, can, is that possible? And the guy's like, of course it's possible. <laughs> so it's like, that's all Jesus had, you know? And, and, and so, so he limits to the first five books of the Bible. He's going to respond to them. But the first thing he says is the, the scriptures that you hold to and you cling to, you don't even know them. You have no understanding of the scriptures. I think that this is critical that we as a church cling to the word of God. This is a reason that we start in a book of the Bible and we take a book of the Bible at a time and we just sort of work through. There are Sundays when I, when I come and it's like, this is just a difficult passage. What it, like, the so what question is very difficult to answer at times. But, but God has revealed himself through his word and it's not up to us to sort of figure out what we need to tell ourselves that God says from, from day to day. God has revealed himself to us through his word. And that is why we as a church um, will continue to teach expositorily where we go through a book of the Bible and we allow God to speak to us through his word as he intended to speak to us precept by precept, thought by thought, paragraph by paragraph, that, that we address this as he sees fit. And so when Jesus confronts these religious leaders, he says, you've misunderstood. You're wrong. You don't even understand the scriptures. We want to understand the scriptures. The scriptures are where the authority lies. It's not based on me, my credentials, or any of your credentials. We come here Sunday, and we submit ourselves to the word of God, and we say, Lord, speak to us. We want to hear what you have to say. Give us wisdom. Give us insight. Help us by your spirit to navigate your word. These guys had turned it into religion. There was no desire of, of seeking God or walking with God, which goes into the next point. The second thing is, nor the power of God. Like first, this, you have no understanding of the scriptures. Second, you don't even know the creator of the universe. You don't understand the great power. Now, the context is the resurrection. Why do they have a hard time believing in the resurrection? Because from a humanistic perspective, like you don't raise people from the dead. Like, I, I, and I'll say, I don't, like those, um, the near-death stories, you know, where somebody died and then they came back, like, they, well, you didn't die. <laughs> we thought you died, but you weren't dead because you came back. Those who die, die. And, and, and but from a theological perspective, at one point, the, the dead will rise again. Um, and so this power of God, is, you're not connected to the source behind the word of god this monday we had a we had a incident is probably the wrong word i have a, a good buddy of mine we um i say we grew up together but we met sort of before seal training we went through seal training together and then after seal training we went different directions he 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 went out to the east coast and i was on the west coast and and uh he went a different direction in the military, but we've we've now like reconnected over the last few years, and we've we've become, you know, pretty good friends. You know, where we see each other a few times a year, and and so Thursday out of the blue, I think that the Lord sort of placed it on Grace's heart 
But Grace says, hey, it's Labor Day. We should have them up for a barbecue. And, and so I'm like, that's great. I text him. I'm like, hey, hey you want to come over for a barbecue? He said, that would be wonderful. And so he and his family came over. And, and as we've sort of reconnected, um, let's just say 25 years ago when we were going through SEAL training, neither one of us were religious. So we didn't really understand or discuss spiritual things. That's not the track we were on. And, and, and to be clear, I've already talked. I'm like, hey, is it, are you okay if I share kind of the story? They're like, yeah, you say whatever you want. It's no big deal to us. Um, so I'm not just talking behind their backs. <laughs> they know. Um, and, and so as Greg and I started talking and communicating like a couple years ago, he made it very clear to me. He's like, dude, I'm, I was an atheist, like hardcore, staunch atheist. He's like, I've softened now to where now I'm like a deist. And so when they come over to our house, it's always very, you know, we're good buddies. So it's, it's, we're able to sort of navigate that tension. And, and, and so I'm like, I don't really touch religion with him or relationship, which I would say, but he would call it religion. So I'll concede on the religion part. And, and, uh, but every time before dinner, it's like, Hey, Greg, is it okay if I pray for the meal? And he's like, shut up, Gunner, like pray. It's okay. Like we can, we can pray. And so it's kind of a, to- a topic we don't touch that much. And then over dinner this week, like as they started sharing their story, I had no, like zero idea that they were very, very embedded in the Mormon church. Like they grew up as Mormons. Um, they, they each, they like were high school sweethearts, but then they married other people and then they went through divorces and then they, they met each other, they married years later. And so he didn't really tell, he didn't get into his story. He's just like, well, through alcohol and stuff and I, I, I reached the point where I'm willing to concede that there's a higher power and, and through AA, I'm, I'm willing to sort of to pray and to pray to this higher power. And I was like, okay, you know, so I'm not really going there. And I look at his wife and I say, Andrea, how did, how did you, like, because you, you define yourself as a Christian and like, what's your story? And so she began to share her story with us from within the Mormon church. And it was like, I vacillated between being super um, sad for her and being super angry with with these men that were over her. Um, she went through a very rough season in her life. Uh, her husband was extremely abusive, um, violent user of narcotics, um, threatened to kill them. She sought help. Um, there was no help available to her. Um, then she eventually went through the divorce and, and, and really wrestled through the divorce. She kind of went into a, a, a very like carnal path and with her kids, she's like, well, I want them to be able to go through restoration in the church. So I need to subject myself to this. And so she started sharing her story. Um, and, and part of her, 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 the, the, the reconciliation that she was seeking um, had to do with she wanted her divorce to be um, recognized by the church because now her abusive husband, um, her, her abusive husband was now saying, well, now that you're with Greg, you're still sealed to me for eternity. And she's telling me the story. And I know this passage that I'm dealing with on Sunday. And she's like, he's abusing me now through like eternal things. So I'm going to the church trying to get them to sort of to annul this, to do away with it. And so she's like, so I sat there and you could just see the pain and the sorrow and the agony in her eyes as she, as she describes this, 
this church council disciplinary thing that she went through. Um, I'm getting furious at what I'm hearing. Um, And she eventually looks at me and she's like, you know, I'll never be in a situation to talk to a pastor. And and you're my friend. And so I want to like, can I talk to you as a pastor? I'm like, yeah, absolutely. And she's like, well, if we ever visited your church, um, like what what would the church think about me? And and how would they would would they view me as a bad person? And I said, well, what do you mean? And she's, you know, got a sleeve of tattoos. And so does he. And she's like, well, I have tattoos. And I remember the last time I went to church, speaking of the Mormon church, she, her mom made her wear like a long sleeve thing. And you could see a little bit of the ink on her sleeve. And a lady like came up to her, grabbed her wrist and was like, like, tisk, tisk, tisk. You know better than that. And kind of like, she's like, so what would people think? And I'm like looking at her. I'm like, would we view you as a bad person? I'm like, well, we need to just, I'm like, let's just sort of back up. I'm like, our church, the starting point is that we believe, like now I, like, I, need, I need like illustrations. <laughs> so I have like the, you know, the, the Costco party cups <laughs> that are different colors. And then there's like an iced tea bottle. I'm like, okay, this iced tea bottle is God. And so our starting point is that God is so holy, so awesome, so mighty, so powerful, so beyond us. And our belief is I took one cup. I'm like, this is your religious person um, who's always walked with God as super goody two shoes is like the Ned Flanders of, 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 of Christianity. And I'm like, they go this far. And I'm like, and then there's somebody who's like murdered people, done 30 years in prison, and he jumps this far trying to get to God. And then there's like the mediocre person who's here. And, and so the cups are all aligned. I'm like, the, the reality is, is if you're in that middle cup, you're looking at the guy in prison, you think you're better. And if you're looking to Ned Flanders, you think you have a long way to go. But the, the reality is you got to get to God. And so how would we as a church look at you? I'm like, well, I can't ask for every, I can't answer for every person, but I, I um, so I want to let you guys all know how we would view somebody like this. I looked around and I said, you know, um, we would view you as one for whom Christ has died. All of us are bad people. All of us have sinned. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. It's not about our works. And by this point, her young daughter came in that had all sorts of her theological viewpoints about God was skewed from Scripture. And so then she had a series of questions. But, but, but just talking with her, at the heart of the problem is these people who were supposedly representing God, they had no clue of the power of God. They have no clue who they're dealing with. They had become sort of brokers of religion, and those under them controlled everything. And, and so they were really like, so we could visit your church. I'm like, yeah, of course you could visit our church. I'm like, our church, it's not... Like there's not some hierarchy where there's people calling shots. I'm a guy that's experienced the power and the grace of God. And I stand under the scriptures. And so when we go through it, I'm not here holding your relationship with God. I'm a guy that's experienced God's grace. And I'm here to help you along in the journey. But my heart was breaking. 
And it was a taste for me of seeing what religion can do. And over the last few weeks, this whole this concept of, of religion versus relationship. Relationship means that we've had this encounter with the holy God, that there is no way we should have this relationship with him. But the only way that we have this relationship with him is through Christ who made the ultimate sacrifice for us. And for those of us who have experienced this, you never lose sight. None of us are so... I don't care. Like, I tuck in my shirt now on Sundays. I comb my hair. My language has cleaned up. But at the core, I'll never forget. Like, I, in fact, uh, today, in comparison to 20 years ago when I first became a Christian, I feel like I have greater understanding of God's holiness and greater understanding of how sinful I really am. And so this beautiful, wonderful gift that I have in this relationship with the power will never, like I pray will, will never be forgotten by me. And that this will be a church that where, where God's grace, mercy, kindness is, is, is above all. We don't care how you look, what, what your history is because Christ on the cross died for you. And when I look at the new Testament, when I go through this, it's only a few stories ago at the wedding feast. The prostitutes and the tax collectors, they were welcomed. And it was the religious people who were most scolded by Christ. And so that's a warning to us. But we probably should move on to verse 30. For in the resurrection, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Um. This is the verse, like, I, I don't want to go into a teaching on the Mormon, Mormon doctrine and other places, but, 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 but what the scripture said, Jesus says, you know, marriage, now I have sweet marriage, uh, that movie, uh, Princess Bride, for those of you like that, um, sorry, told you I'm in an emotional state of uh, marriage from Ephesians 532 we're told that, that marriage is this earthly relationship, that the whole purpose of marriage isn't for eternity. Marriage is sort of this relationship that, that God has created to sort of, that, that, that can best describe the mystery of the relationship that we have with Christ in heaven. And that's, that's 532. Like, all, like in Ephesians 5, when you go through a wedding ceremony, at the very end of it, Paul says all of this, I'm not really talking about marriage. What I'm talking about is this great mystery. That, that somehow this fellowship, koinonia, this relationship we have with the Holy One, the, the closest thing that we can understand, the closest thing that we can use to understand this union is the human institution of marriage. And that was the picture that God, why he gave marriage. It, it's, it, it, it's, it's a mystery. And so Jesus says, after you die, like you're in heaven and you're worshiping and there's no marriage and your marriage is like it doesn't, it doesn't go into heaven. Like, and then there's a whole bunch of questions that I can't answer and the, the scriptures don't, don't speak of. But Jesus says, you're, just, you're so backwards in your thinking, you've missed the whole point of what God says. And he says, do you not know the scriptures? Have you not read? And Jesus is going to go to a, a passage of scripture that they would acknowledge as, 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 uh, as their scriptures. Um, verse 32, he's going to quote from, is it 32, verse 32? He's going to quote from Exodus 3, 6. And he says, have you not read this? I am the God of Abraham. And you could, in the Greek text, you could make it say, and it works in English as well, but you could say, I am the God of Abraham. 
and I am the God of Isaac, and I am the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. In one verb tense, one word, one verb tense, Jesus destroys their whole argument. From a section of scripture that they would have adhered to, he says, God says, I am. There is no past tense. That means that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they are alive and with God in heaven, and he is their God. That's what Jesus says. That God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. These Sadducees have been like holding this over our heads for so long. And now as this happens and the word spreads how this Jesus of Nazareth has decimated the religious leaders, now the Pharisees are going to have a tribunal council. We need to get together. They met. Um, uh, verse 34, when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered themselves together. This is bad, boys. We need to do something. We need to plug up this hole because it's out of control right now. And so before the Pharisees had sent their disciples sort of covertly to try to trip up Jesus, now they're going to go to him face to face. And so they go to him and they present one of them a lawyer. We'll save the lawyer jokes for later. Um, this, this was a lawyer. Remember, the Mosaic law, it wasn't just religious law. This, it, was, it was their governing document. So it was, not, it was spiritual and practical and sort of day-to-day -day living. It, was, it is what governed them as a people. And so this lawyer, who would have been a, a, a master of the law, other places they're referred to as scribes, he steps forward of the Pharisees, and he has a question for Jesus. Like on one side, they're probably super stoked that Jesus just decimated. Like, man, we've been trying to answer that question for years. And he just blew it out. We got to file that one away, boys, because I am. What was that? That was Exodus. What Exodus? Whatever. Like, document that because we're going to use that against them next time. But then this lawyer steps up. I have a question for you. And he asked him a question, testing him. Teacher, what is the greatest or the great commandment in the law? So I believe that the lawyer steps up and he says to Jesus, this is like asking a parent the question, you know, you have four children. Which one is your favorite? Which one is your favorite child? Like, I don't know if everybody had their sort of favorite one, their, their thoughts about it. And now we see this when we, uh, we, we fall into sort of a trap. When we see um, wh which, is your, which is the great commandment, we naturally think of the Ten Commandments. Don't think of the Ten Commandments. There were 613 laws uh, within the Old Testament. So this is a huge question. Which one's the greatest one? Which one's the most important? Jesus, without even skipping a beat, and don't like think relationship, relationship, relationship. When, I t when Jesus sees the whole of the Scriptures, and I would say from Genesis to Revelation, but at this time it's, it's Genesis to Malachi, he looks at him and he says, the greatest commandment is Deuteronomy 6.5. It is what is in the mezuzah on the box of every Jewish home. You shall love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. From the deepest seat of your being, where all of your emotion resides, that should be filled with absolute, total, complete love for God. That speaks of relationship. And then he's not done, and he says, this is the greatest and foremost commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
Now, if we were to fast forward a few days, if we were to fast forward a few days, we'd find ourselves in John 13, 34. If you turn over to John 13, 34 with me, this is at the Lord's Supper. So if today's story takes place on Tuesday or Wednesday, this, I think, is probably happening on Thursday night. There's some debate or discussion, you know, that the, the clock is different, how they viewed time and, and days. But at John, John 13, 34, the Gospel of John, of John's Gospel, he devotes almost a quarter of his gospel to the Lord's Supper. And remember, to set the scene, they, they had arrived there. And, and as they, they, they come to the room, there's supposed to be this great lesson. Um, or, or I think Jesus was almost hoping to see servant leadership, that he'd been working with the guys. And he gets into the room, and, and because the guy had cleared out the servant, they needed to wash their feet. But this was a task reserved for the lowliest of lowly. And I sort of, I sort of see Jesus and the guys getting there, like Jesus is looking around, like, aren't any of you going to like, all of you are too prideful to wash the feet. Like, haven't you figured out that, that the least shall be the greatest? And so Jesus gets up and he gets a basin of water and he goes around and he washes their feet. And so, so in this, we get to John thirteen thirty four, And Jesus looks at me, he says, a new commandment. I give to you that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, uh, you can go back to Matthew. So there's a slight variation, and Ephesians offers this same variation. So the second greatest commandment is to love others as yourself. But after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, the command is sort of, um, there, there's, a, there's a modification, a twist that's placed into it. It's increased because now no longer are we to love others as we love ourselves. The standard has become we're to love others as Christ loved us. He is our example. Way more of a sacrificial uh, standard. And so coming back, when he says this, Jesus then in verse 40 says, On these two commandments, to love the Lord God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength, everything that you have, love him. And then second to that is to love others like yourself. He would go on to say, like, I have loved you. He's heading to the cross. That's how he loved us. And then he says, on these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. The law, the first part, the prophets, the second part of the Old Testament. He says, on these two things, loving God and loving others, the whole of the scriptures hang from that. You can't, everything in the scripture depends on you loving God and loving others. That's what every story ties into. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. He's like, hey, okay, I answered your question, but hey, while you guys are still pondering what I just said to you, I have a question for you. This is going to be the last question he asked them. This is where he silences them. He's going for the absolute jugular vein. He says, what do you think about the Christ? Christ is synonymous. That's the Greek word for Messiah. So he's asking, what do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he going to be? Super softball question. Every Jew could answer this question. Where is the Messiah going to come from? what's, What's his lineage? And so they said to him, the son of David. 
Remember, as he did the triumphal entry, they were screaming, Son of David, all, all through the math. If you, tra- if you trace through Matthew, if you have a computer program or you have access to Google and you just Google Son of David, like in Matthew, you'll be able to come up with all the phrases. I, I should have done that before I got here, but I just had that thought. It's all through there. Son of David was critical. Son of David goes back to 2 Samuel chapter 7, what we know as the Davidic covenant. And so the Davidic covenant, it was God made an unconditional promise to David. And he said, through your lines, through your DNA, there will come a king that will reign forever. His, his kingdom will have no end. And so Jesus says, you've answered correctly. He, there, this was a no-brainer for, for them. And so then Jesus continues in verse 43, and he says, Then how does David in the Spirit... Call him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. If David calls him Lord, how is he his son? So the Sadducees had this little trick question for him. Now he has a little trick question for them. And this psalm, it's Psalm 110, verse 1. It is, I believe it's the most quoted psalm in the entire New Testament. It, it would be instrumental uh, for the early church. And Jesus is basically saying, well, now if David by the Spirit penned these words, and David says he calls his own son like Lord, not, not, not Lord like, oh, you're a really great guy, but Lord like bow down and worship, Lord like, they, like Caesar wanted for himself. How does David then worship his own son? How does he write this? Now, they're not going to have an answer to sort of explain this. They're silenced. Because they know exactly what Jesus is saying. Jesus is claiming Messiahship. He, Matthew's already started with his genealogy. Very critical passage. The very first few verses of Matthew showing that Jesus has the genealogy to be prophet, king, everything. He has the DNA, the lines, the pedigree to be the Messiah. Now, if we were to fast forward a couple days, if you go over with me to Acts chapter 2, um, Peter is a witness to this, right? Peter is one of the, the, the apostles. Peter is one of Jesus's right-hand men. He is, he is in the inner three, Peter, James, and John. Now, Jesus, in a couple days, he's going to be executed. He's going to be buried for three days, and he's going to rise again, and then a few days later, he's going to ascend into heaven. And after his ascension, the church, or the, not the church, the apostles in a, in a gathering of people, they're waiting around to see what's coming next. And then all of a sudden, Pentecost happens. The Spirit descends on those that were waiting in the upper room. They're baptized by the Spirit. Great things happen. 3,000 people come to faith. And then they are challenged. And Peter raises up. The, the moment that Jesus had been preparing him for, they're saying, you guys are all drunk. And Peter says, we're not all drunk. It's 9 in the morning. The, these are known languages. They're speaking the gospel. All of the people from around the world, they're hearing the gospel in their native language, a language that we don't know, but the Spirit is giving us the ability to communicate to them. And now in verse 29, so in in Acts chapter 2, verse 29, Peter's giving his first sermon, and he comes to this very passage, or this very, the concept from this passage. It's going to come in verse 34, where he's going to quote from the same passage that Jesus just quoted from. So he builds his case about David and his son. Notice verse 29. It says, Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. And so because he was a prophet and knew 
that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead prophetically and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus, God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of, the, of God, And having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool from your feet. He quotes from the same passage that Jesus just quoted from. And as he, he stops here, they would have all got what he was saying. He was very clear. And he says then, the uh, sort of the nails into the casket. He looks out at this crowd and he says, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him, that's Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And that was the end of his sermon. And the crowd is left there. And we're told that they're pierced to the heart. And they're like, well, what do we do? What do we do? What do we do? And we'll see that Peter goes on to say, believe. And then they receive forgiveness. The church is born. It's It's a beautiful, powerful scene. But as we go back to Matthew, the very last verse, it says, no one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare from that day on to ask him another question. When I look at this scene, Here they have God in their midst. He came humbly. He came not as they would have seen the Messiah to come. I saw a video a few years ago, and as I was studying this week, it reminded me, uh, you know, so in honor of football season kicking off, I'm going to tell a football story, which is soccer. (laughs) Um, so, So one of the world's most famous football players is Ronaldo. He plays for Real Madrid. He plays for the national team of, of um, Portugal. He is an amazing striker. He's like the rock star of rock stars. I don't even know how many billion dollars he makes, but he makes a lot of money. And so there's this video where they dress him up like a really chubby guy. They put him in sweatpants. They give him a beard and they, they put like a bunch of hair on him. They make him look like a homeless, homeless guy. And they, they sort of set him on the street in this chair with a soccer ball and like a little poodle and a little box for like tips. And so he's sitting there kind of like, looks like, you know, not, not drunk, but looks homeless. And so it's like downtown Madrid, all these business people, like downtown New York City, you know, people are walking around. Then he picks up the ball and he's like doing all of his stuff. Like businessmen are walking by and he's shooting the ball through their leg and he's stopping them. And they're like, just get away from me. He walks up to one girl and is like, Hey, can I get your phone number? And the girl's like, get away from me, get away from me, get away from me. It's like, oh, man, that girl doesn't even know who she's talking to. Most of the people are just walking by him. Most of the people are just ticked off by him. Then all of a sudden, this little boy comes up. And this little boy starts, like, going back and forth with Ronaldo. And, and, and Ronaldo's, like, bouncing headshot. And the little boy's playing soccer with him. It's the most beautiful thing. And then all of a sudden... The guy, Ronaldo, picks up the soccer ball. And the little boy's standing there just kind of, like, you know, like hanging out. Ronaldo starts sighing the ball, and about this time, Ronaldo starts pulling off the beard and his hat, 
And the little boy is just like in tears. It's the coolest thing ever. But do you know what? All of the people miss this great display. I mean, he fills stadiums. All of these people just walked by greatness and ignored it. But as soon as he revealed himself in like his glory of man, now it's like all of the cell phones are out. The crowd's like erupting. But the thing is, when Jesus came, he came dressed humbly like a man. And so many people are missing the greatness of God. They're walking right by the power of Jesus and missing the whole point. He is going to come again in all of his glory. And I think that the lessons here as we go, as we conclude this section, is first and foremost, like if you're not sure who Jesus is, if you haven't really placed your faith in him, I would encourage you. Like, I'm here to answer questions. All sorts of people, like whoever invited you to come today, or like, like they're willing to answer your questions. We have resources, things to give you to help you uh, look at the evidence of who Jesus is. And for those of us who have trusted in Jesus, who have recognized him as our Savior, may we never lose sight of his almighty power. We don't serve some small, teeny God that's sort of halfway involved in our lives We serve this awesome, mighty, wonderful God who loves us, who cares for us, who died for us, who desires relationship with us, cares about the nitty-gritty of your life. So don't put him in the back corner in your junk drawer. Give him your life. Walk with him. He cares about you. It's a beautiful thing. So I'm going to pray. And at the end of the prayer, I'm going to tack on a, a, a blessing for lunch. Okay? So... Hopefully that doesn't distract us too much. Um, Father, we do thank you and praise you. Lord, I, um, as I study the Gospels, as I go through and grow over the years and examine this Jesus, um, Lord, it's not just some fairy tale. The evidence is overwhelming, supporting who he claimed to be, and he claimed to be the Messiah, God, amongst us as he revealed himself, as he demonstrated his power and authority through miracles and healing people to authenticate his authority to forgive sins. May we never lose sight of that. Father, we, um, Father, we ask that the majesty of Christ, his glory, his power, may it never be forgotten to, by us. Father, there are times in this life when circumstances seem overwhelming as death hits each of us. It's very easy to lose hope, to see our faith weakened. But Lord, we pray that you would grow our understanding of who you are. May we grow in our knowledge of the scriptures, how you have revealed yourself to us. May we examine your creation, it's overwhelming. And to think you just spoke it into existence. The same power that raised Christ from the dead is within us for those who believe in Christ. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us to live our lives in a way that reflects that we serve and walk with a great and awesome God. We thank you for this day. We thank you for our fellowship. We thank you. Uh, For this church family, we thank you for um, 
the food that we're about to receive. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen.